Our scripture for today is out of John. It's John chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, please look that up. Feel free to look that up and just follow along with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jew Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted, the water now, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, the poor, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I do want to uh, say thanks to uh, the search committee. It's even a privilege to be recommended. And... Uh, the questions that y'all asked uh, were really encouraging and makes me thankful for the process. Um, by way of intro, what I want you to think about is that I, when we consider what it means to have life, I think we at least connect that with the sense of uh, joy and happiness, that somehow that's connected to, to the sense of life. Um, what I want to suggest is that the Bible says that Jesus' aim for you, what he came to do in some ways, was to bring you real joy, like lasting joy. And I don't know how that hits you. I think sometimes it can sound maybe cheesy. Uh, maybe it can sound naive, uh, depending on what's going on in your life, or unrealistic. Uh, and I think there's a conversation from uh, a pastor uh, had with one of his members where uh, she was in, like a junior in high school. And she came into his office uh, after uh, her boyfriend had uh, broke up with her. And she said, uh, I hear you talk about Jesus. I believe in him. But what good is Jesus if I don't have a boyfriend? And I actually think there's beautiful honesty, right? And that anything that kind of makes you say, oh, that's silly. Why would somebody say that? It's actually where I think young people can teach us because a lot of times they're willing to say things that we want. And like whether you're examining Christianity, trying to figure it out, whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, or especially if you're, I think, burned out, that's the question that I think sometimes happens is, well, what good is Jesus if I'm sad? Or what good is Jesus if I'm still lonely? Or what good is Jesus if I'm having trouble uh, having a kid? Or what good is Jesus if my car has trouble and I can hardly uh, pay the bills? And what's behind that, I want to suggest, is this passage that James read for us. 
there is a sense of, I don't think Jesus really wants my joy. And Jesus came to bring life. That's the claim of John. And he does it through bringing lasting joy. So I just want to look at three things this morning. Uh, The problem at the party, then the solution and the cost. And uh, I heard a sermon, this was like probably 20 years ago from Tim Keller. And then another from a guy named Ricky Jones. Just so much of that is from them, okay? Uh, I could never think about it the same way. So what's the problem? All right, this is verse 1 through 3. Jesus' and disciples, they get invited to a wedding and they go. And weddings in, in those ancient Near Eastern Jewish cultures, they were even a bigger deal than they were uh, in our day. They would last uh, sometimes upwards of a week and the whole village would show up with out-of-town family and friends. And at some point during this celebration, during the week, the wine is about to run out. And right, that gets brought to Jesus' attention by his mother Mary in verse 3. The party's out of wine. And so on one level, that kind of upfront level, the problem is pretty simple. The wine's running out. What does that mean? We know what that means. If the bars close and they stop serving or a party starts to stop serving wine, people decide, I guess it's time to go home. And in those days, it was no different. If the wine was going to run out of a wedding, then people were going to go home. Historians have actually discovered that in those ancient Near Eastern contexts, you could be sued if you ran out of wine at a wedding, which is very, I don't know, nerve-wracking. Uh, and uh, the groom's parents would actually pay for it, which is, would be a great practice to bring back if you have daughters. Um, and so, so up front, what's about to happen is there's an unnamed married couple that's about to undergo public humiliation and perhaps some financial loss. So that... That's the upfront problem. And I just want you to think about that because this is Jesus' first miracle. This is where he first reveals his glory is what it says, right? To the world. He's going to show the world for the first time by miracle, here's who I am. And he does it by encountering a dying party where an unnamed wedding couple is about to endure some shame and possible financial loss. And what he does is he... he miraculously create, re, uh, creates the fuel of celebration and revs by, back up a dying party. Honestly, what do you do with that? That's his first miracle. Like, is that what you would do if you were going to introduce yourself to the world? Like, why doesn't he raise somebody from the dead? Why doesn't he have some angels kind of lift him up and proclaim this is the son of God? You know, something like that. But to save an unmarried couple from embarrassment? That's your first miracle, Jesus? Yes. What if that actually shows you what the heart of Christ is like? Now, on the one hand, in the grand scheme of world history, who cares about an unnamed uh, wedding couple's, uh, couple's wedding going south? Well, Jesus does. The Lord of space, time, and dimension actually cares. And it brings out his compassion. And I guess that's my first question is, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that this is who Jesus is, that your struggles and your problems, they don't bring out Jesus' irritation and his anger, which is what I think that we think, but it actually brings out his compassion. And the way you know that is, do you actually bring it, bring it to him? Like, do you think Jesus cares about the fact that you're still struggling to make friends your junior year in college? Do you think that Jesus cares about your chronic pain or things like dyslexia that make your, uh, that make your life harder? Do you think Jesus cares about um, the coming unemployment that, that, that's always threatening? He does, and you come to him with it. 
But second of all, and here's the, uh, this is the key for understanding the big picture of why Jesus does this as his first miracle. Look, we got to say this. There are plenty of warnings in the Bible about alcohol and its power. And there's stories, I'm sure, even in this room of how it's been abused and misused and it leaves, leaves ton, tons of damage. However, if that is the only way that we view alcohol, we will actually miss the story of the Bible and, and how the Bible views it as a whole. Because in the story of the Bible, wine is actually mostly associated with blessing and joy. You can see Psalm 104.15, Proverbs 3.10, and the lack of wine is associated with sorrow and joy running out, Isaiah 24.11. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. Isn't that interesting? The prophet Isaiah, when he is thinking about the coming Messiah and the salvation he's going to bring that's going to eventually transform this world into a new heavens, new earth. You know how he describes it? Listen to this. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. And it says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. They even... Jesus' second coming of eternal joy is characterized as wine forever running. Isn't that interesting? And so once you realize that Scripture sees wine as a metaphor for blessing and joy, then when the wine runs out at this wedding, I would suggest it's actually a, a picture of what humanity's problem is. That the event at Cana is actually our story. Because human beings, apart from Jesus, we are characterized by the joy always running out in our life. The wine always running out. Because according to the Bible, our problem is separation from God because of sin. And that sin means that then I look for satisfaction and joy in everything but Jesus. And the result is eventually the wine, the joy always runs out. It was about five or six years ago that... Um, actor, comedian, Jim Carrey received his second Golden Globe uh, nomination. And he did what, I think, I think comedians are some of our best communicators. He did this kind of piercingly honest, kind of joking uh, speech when he received it. And here's essentially what he said. He said, I'm now a two-time Globe, uh, Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And so now, you know, when I go to sleep, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm a two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And he said this, and when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being a three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. He says this, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this, this terrible search for, for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are really important awards. And when he said that, you could feel the tension in the crowd of people being like, <sighs> because what he was saying is, this is my second one. And it hasn't fulfilled me. But the third one surely will, right? And it was piercing. And that's when you begin to see that the, wet, the problem at the Canaan wedding is our problem. We are characterized by trying to find joy and satisfaction that will last in all the wrong places and it runs out. So look, on the one hand, yes, let's speak to the obvious thing. Uh, we live in Oxford and around Ole Miss, which we pride ourselves in being the party. And I love parties. My counselor tells me in Enneagram 7, I go to them because I'm scared I'm going to miss out. All that kind of stuff, okay? But the question becomes, why are you actually going to the parties? 
There's a difference between going to a party trying to find joy that will never run out and going to a party out of a place of fullness of joy and security. If you want to know the difference, going to a party to try to find a joy that never runs out, alcohol becomes a place where I try to numb my sorrows, where I try to cover my insecurity, and it becomes liquid courage. It becomes a form of cover. And the way I know I'm trying to find joy is if Sunday morning or Monday morning actually feels empty. And therefore, the next weekend is when it won't run out. But if a party is just an expression of joy and thanks and I love being there, Monday is not empty. That was fun. That was great. But it wasn't everything. And so even our love of parties, if you'll really look, a lot of times they'll show we actually, the parties aren't there because we have fullness of joy. Many times it's because we have a lack of joy. But also, right, keep coming, like, I, this is behind our never-ceasing drive for our kids to be the best. If I can get them to the next stage of life and get them successful at everything, then maybe my joy finally won't run out. But at the next stage of life, there's a new set of problems. It keeps running out. You can go down a lot. This, if I can just get my body to look the certain way or, or, or have this kind of shape, the joy will never run out. But I get there and age is real. And it's starting to run out. And so I just want to suggest that the problem on the one hand, yes, up front, is that this couple's about to undergo shame and embarrassment, and Jesus covers that. But when you look at the big picture of the Bible, you realize that it is a parable for human life, that separation from God, our problem is we search for joy outside of Jesus, and it always runs out. And so what's the solution that Jesus brings? Verse 6 through 10, he, Jesus tells these servants to fill six stone water jars that hold between 20 and 30 gallons. The servants do that. And he says, take it to the master of the feast. Take it to the master of the feast. Think wedding coordinator. The wedding coordinator tastes it. And he discovers this is amazing wine. Like this is the best tasting wine, a lot better than we were having earlier in the week. And so the solution on the one hand is Jesus miraculously changes water into wine. But I just want you to think about this. He creates a, at minimum maybe more, 120 gallons of incredible tasting wine. I think, by my estimation, that is around 700 bottles of wine, okay? And it's not, the scripture wants you to know, it's not two buck chuck. It is like a hundred dollar bottle. Like they are saying, this is amazing. Why? Why would Jesus create that much abundance and it be that good of wine? I'm going to steal from my friend Ricky. Imagine this scenario, okay? Imagine you're at Larson's on a Friday night, cash saver, right? You want to save a little cash. And you're just, a, you're observing the parking lot and you see a middle-aged man. And he walks out with a nice bottle of wine. What are you thinking? You think he's probably going home uh, for a nice night with his wife. That's awesome, right? Scenario two, that same middle-aged man. Walks out with, I don't know, a couple 12 packs of fat tire. You think, okay, I, look, I, he's probably going to a party. Correct. Scenario three, that middle-aged man backs his F-150 pickup truck to Larson's, lets down the tailgate, and they take, <laughs> they, they take 700 bottles of wine and put it into his truck. What are you thinking? You are thinking wherever that guy goes, that is the party. 
That is the feast. Just follow him. Like, I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying to get around the point that Jesus is declaring to the world when he makes this abundance, I am the party itself. I am joy itself. I'm the one you're looking for. And in me is the only place that joy and satisfaction will never run out. And we just ask, how can that be? And the answer is that when we realize in all our pursuits of joy, all these places that the wine keeps running out, what we're, deep, what we're really longing for is for someone to deeply know us and fully love us. That's what we were made for. It's what we're looking for in sex. It's what we're looking for in achievements. It's what, it's, we're always wanting to be accepted and loved and known. And we were made to be known at our core by the God of this universe and for him to love us with a never stopping, never giving up love. And it's only in Jesus that you will find the God of this universe knows you fully and loves you deeply. It is in Jesus, it's in the face of God that you will find real eternal joy. So much so that St. Augustine, you know, thousands of years ago, here's what he said. There is an everlasting party. And what is celebrated there, he begins to explain, is not a passing moment or an occasional feast. He writes this, the choirs of angels keep eternal festival for the eternally present face of God is a joy that is never diminished. And look, if you're like me, we just, we struggle to believe that. We think of Jesus as a withholding God, that he is stingy with love, that he's stingy with grace, that he's stingy with joy. And so how many times when we think about life in college or we think about life in the future, honestly, we think Jesus gets in the way of real life. Following him, submitting to his commands, trusting him gets in the way of real joy. Which means we think Jesus turns wine into water, not water into wine. But he does. It's who he is. He is fullness of joy itself. There is no lasting joy apart from him. And it's, I think it's going to be refreshing to somebody if you'll just admit that, that I don't think, Jesus, you have real joy. And, and that the reason that some of us are subtly angry is you have tried so hard to do it the right way. You're the one who's been good. You're the one who's been religious. Your kids are in a Christian school. And you're just mad. You're mad that other people who didn't do it the right way have the things that you want, popularity or money or the happiness that you wish that you had. And you think Jesus is stingy. And Jesus with this miracle is saying, I'm not. I'm more pro-joy than you are. I'm more pro-life than you are. I am joy itself. How can that be? Like maybe that sounds nice. How can I begin to trust Jesus with my joy? And the answer is the cost. It's the cost of the party. Verse 3 and 4. This dialogue happens between Jesus and his mother, and it's weird. Okay, let's admit that. He's told, like, Jesus, there is no more wine. And Jesus' response is very cryptic. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You're like, this is why I don't read my Bible. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> anytime that Jesus in John, anytime, it's not just Jesus. In the, my hour in the Gospel of John is said over and over and over again. And my hour is always referring to Jesus coming death and resurrection. That's what the hour means. So here's what the conversation says. Mary says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, it's not time for me to die yet. That's weird, right? It's almost like Jesus was thinking about his death 
while watching a wedding? Well, maybe it's not strange. Because some of you have experienced that when you're at a wedding, what do you think about? You might imagine your own wedding one day. Or you might think back to your, to your wedding that you had. And Jesus is God himself in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. He's, and he's the one who created marriage. And you know what Ephesians 5 tells us ultimately the purpose of marriage is? It's a living picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and his marriage to the, his people, the church. So Jesus, I would suggest, is absolutely at a wedding and he's thinking about his own. His own wedding that's going to be called the wedding marriage supper of the Lamb where he unites forever with his people in the new heavens and new earth. But he's thinking about what it's going to cost himself to marry us. And what it's going to cost him is the cross, his own death, his hour. This is how you can begin to trust Jesus with your joy. Meditate on that. What did it cost Jesus to marry you? Because what I deserve for looking for joy in all the wrong places, for, for running away from Christ, if I'm going to run from life and joy itself, I deserve death, separation from him. But Jesus goes to the cross to take what I deserve. Actually, the night, the night before he's going to die, he starts sweating drops of blood, thinking about the cross because he's going to take the separation, the ultimate sorrow, the wrath of God for my sin. And then he goes to the cross. Why is Jesus hanging on the cross? Because he loves you. Because he's taking what we deserve. So that your story can, can go where world history is headed to end in a wedding called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain and no more wars. And the wine will never run out. That's what Jesus is doing. And take the flip side, right? That's what Keller points out. It's actually hilarious to think about. You can almost miss this detail. Think about the groom at the wedding, right? He's there. I'm not, even, I'm not sure the groom is aware that the wine is running out, but he's about to become the laughing stock of the party. People are about to go home. He's about to be humiliated. And because of Jesus, the wedding coordinator tastes the wine. He has no idea that Jesus has done this. Some of the servants do. And he turns to the groom and he says, you, talking to the groom, you save the best wine from now. And you get the impression the groom is kind of like, yeah, I did. <laughs> like, that's the kind of planner that I am. And kind of you get the impression that at the end of the week, like his grooms are like giving him high fives, like that was the best wedding. He's like, yeah, I did it. And Jesus just stands there and lets him get the credit for what Jesus did. That is what Jesus like. That if you want real joy, if you want the fullness of joy, it's in himself. We just simply let him do the work. Let him take my shame. Let him take my sin. Let him take my regress. All the cost of me seeking joy in the wrong places. And he will give you what he has earned. Righteousness, grace, beauty, acceptance. Jesus didn't go to the cross for people that he's disappointed in. He went at great, at infinite cost, so that you'd be made fit to be the bride of Jesus in an infinite joy. So this is how I'll end. I think I've used this illustration before, but I, you know, one thing about being against campus semester, you get to do a ton of weddings and it's really fun. And so you just kind of get used to this little scenario that always happens, right? After the rehearsal on a Friday, the wedding coordinator will stand up and she'll start trying to, you know, announce what time everybody has to be back at the church. And she'll look at the groomsmen, right? If it's six o'clock wedding and she'll be like, okay, guys, you know, 
got to be here uh, at like 1.30 p.m. And they're like, oh, 1.30? Like, what are we going to do for four and a half hours? And like, you know, I've, I've been in groomsmen in places before where like literally like a dodgeball game was started and we're on chairs and like we're throwing things at each other and because they're just trying to do something. But then right after that, she'll say, and, uh, and the bride and the bridesmaids, y'all need to get here about 1130. And there'll just be this like smile that comes on their face. And when you walk into the, the kind of bridal room, there's no dodgeball being played or anything like this, Right. There's this palpable excitement because you've just given them seven hours to get ready because she knows that she spends seven hours getting ready. When those doors open, she's going to have such astounding beauty that she comes down the aisle. Literally, the groom's knees will buckle and tears will come down his face. So overwhelmed is he at the beauty of his bride. Look, why this life of suffering? Why all this repenting? Why all this struggling with sin? Because Jesus is making you ready for that day when, they, when the doors of eternity swing open and you have been made radiant and holy that the Lord of this universe looks at you and cries and his knees buckle. So astounded is he that he gets to be with you forever. That's the joy that will never stop. That's my question. Do you know that? Jesus doesn't want to just like be your belief. He doesn't want to be a tradition. He doesn't even want to just be a handyman to fix your problems. He's a groom. He wants to be with you. And he wants you to trust him with your joy. Don't you at least wish that were true? That's an invitation to come to Jesus, the bridegroom of eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you for this uh, miracle. Uh, I think we can even admit that if we were to make up the Bible, uh, we would not make this seemingly ordinary behind the scenes, your first miracle. But you did it. You did it to show us that at your heart is real joy. And so I pray that wherever we are, whether we're cynical this morning, uh, whether we're sad and that is real, uh, whether we're excited, you would keep calling us into the hope of Jesus and the one day, someday, eternal joy that's coming that we can actually experience taste of it now. Would you bring us to that? In Jesus' name, amen.